hello everyone. Welcome to this edition of Connected by Community brought to you by Ballantyne Capital Advisors. Today we have a very special episode. I will be one of your hosts, Cameron Cannon. Uh, today I'm joined with Anthony Colacheco from our office. And on the other side of the table today, we have Brian Ballantyne, who's usually a host. Um, we're going to interview him today, uh, do a little finance one um, about Ballantyne Capital Advisors and kind of how it got started and where it is today. So thanks for joining us, Brian. Glad to be here and on this side of the table. I know, like, it feels fun. You're a uh, professional. So. Yeah, that's what they say. So this should be the best one since you're used to uh, hosting them. So. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure, man. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today, Brian. And, uh, you know, really, really excited to talk about, obviously, we're all involved in Ballantine Capital, but you are the OG, uh, as the kids like to call it these days. So I guess tell us a little about yourself personally, professionally, and uh, kind of how you got to where you are today. Well, the OG means I got gray hair. Very true. <laughs> yes, you'll learn about that. Um, so... I'm married, two kids, uh, soon to have one in college, so that's going to be a new experience, um, and uh, live in the Simpsonville area, and I've uh, been here for, gosh, over 25 years. Uh, I'm, I guess that makes you a native, or me a native, uh, originally from the Lexington, South Carolina area, so I'm uh, definitely a South Carolina native. Uh, have been in the financial services industry for almost 25 years, just a little bit less than that. Uh, started my career with a couple big firms, uh, realized pretty early on they don't care a whole lot about the client. They care about their corporate shareholders and uh, started my own independent shop. Uh, and I guess the rest is history. That's the 45 second version or less. So, so w why did you get into being a financial advisor? So always, you know, here's the story. When clients ask this, this is, you know, again, to keep it 45 seconds or less, uh, out of college, actually in college, I took a class. I was an engineering major at first, really good with math, and decided that, though, after taking a lot of engineering classes, I actually like financial numbers better than I did mechanical numbers, we'll call it. And I took a finance and, I believe, investment and insurance type class, did really, really well. I had the professor actually approach me. Uh, and said, hey, I think you got a knack for this. You probably should get in this industry. Uh, don't come from a family of a lot of money, so I didn't know a whole lot about it. I uh, was interested in it, though. And um, I said, you know, I, I think I'm just going to go get a standard-type job, if you will. So out of college, a buddy of mine um, got me a job with, a, with a, a large Fortune 500 company. I did very, very well. I, gosh, whatever I was, 22. Uh, making even today would be a good uh, income, not working really too hard, uh, company, car, and all that wonderful stuff. But I hated it. It wasn't, I wasn't passionate about it. We were um, working in the selling motors and bearings and other parts for ind industrial settings. And I honestly could have cared less. I didn't feel like I was impacting people's lives and what I wanted to do. So at the time, obviously ha had no kids. I got married, had no kids. And we, we were living um, in Florence, South Carolina at that time, near, near Myrtle Beach. And we decided to move this way, and uh, I'm shorting a lot of the details out, but decided to get in this business because um, it's what I really had thought about a lot and just wanted to do, wanted to help people. It's what I really was interested in and to take a chance. Um, you know, we're able to live pretty frugally and lived off my wife's salary. And uh, I always, and you guys know from me telling you, you know, I worked, I think, about 100 hours my first year. Uh, I think I, I grossed about 11000 That's a gross number. Um and so even back then, that didn't go real far. And it, it took a long time. It was a lot. You know, I always say I learned from, from hard knocks. I got a Ph.D. in that business, um, learned a lot of valuable lessons. But uh, that's, that's maybe I'm at a minute and a half version of, of how I got into it. <laughs> what, um, 
I know, you know, you're obviously very entrepreneurial. You started your own, you know, kind of went out on your own and started at such a young age. What's, um, you know, how did that go? What's, you know, what drove you there? What's something you learned? Um, Because obviously I'm young and, uh, you know, aspire to kind of be like that as well. What's something that you would maybe tell somebody, you know, my age about about doing that at such a young age? Yeah, and I think, you got, I mean, I have the entrepreneurial spirit, always have. If my wife was here, she would tell you all the things And when I was even younger and I tried. Um, and, and I've also never done well in bureaucratic organizations. That's just my personality. Um, and, of course, our industry is very rigid and compliant. We always have to deal with those things. But then you throw on top of it a Fortune 500 company that I started working with uh, when I started my career in a large, and then later on a large bank. You know, it just doesn't mix well because I'm like, I just want to serve clients and they just want to put me in this box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the problem with large, for one of them, there's a lot of problems, but one of them is they're trying to manage to the lowest common denominator. And uh, certainly there are a lot of very successful people. I'm not the only one, but I don't feel like I need to be managed by the lowest common denominator. Uh, and I have a lot to offer the world beyond the common denominator. And so I found that very challenging to give the best to my clients when I was constrained by large conglomerates. And so I just decided to combine the entrepreneurialism with the complete unwillingness or undesirability of bureaucratic organizations and uh, form my own independent shop to just focus. If I could just focus and serve the client, all would work out well. And and that really has been the motto that propelled me for this almost 25 years. And it it definitely has. I know working there, I, I see that every day. You know, you definitely put the client first. What's, um, you know, speaking about large bureaucratic firms that, that you start at and you've a lot of people that kind of go independent, they might not have this this knowledge. But what's something that makes, you know, Ballantine Capital Advisors different than, you know, your local big broker dealer firm, let's say Raymond James or, or Edward Jones, to name a few? What I guess what's the difference there? Yeah. So I, a lot of people don't realize this when 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 they go into a big name shop, their advisor, broker, whatever they're calling themselves works for that firm, meaning uh, the client's interests generally are going to be second or third if they're lucky. And it's not that that person's a bad person. Um, so if it's some big, broadly traded firm on Wall Street, um, that is person is an employee of that firm who then that firm serves the client. So that person generally has a fiduciary, what's called a fiduciary obligation to the employer. Now, the employer might have an obligation to the client. And so people don't quite understand, I call it a three-legged stool, um, that what has happened is their advisor or their broker or what financial advisor is coupled with the person that they work for together instead of having a distinct separation. And to me, it just creates conflicts of interest, even if they're great advisors. Again, there's some really great people that work for some of those firms. They are absolutely broken systems. Um, Again, some great people, some not so great in every organization, uh, but that system's a broke system, in my opinion. And I think one thing, too, that um, that I've seen a lot at, at such a young age already is, you know, people have, have seen what happened with Bernie Madoff, let's say, um, and they think that, oh, well, I'm at such a large firm, you know, that would never happen again. And one thing that, that I know you always say is like the three-legged stool, you got the fox watching the chicken coop. Um, and just because they're at a large firm, there's actually a more conflict of interest than, than, you know, being independent. Can you speak on that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. So Bernie Madoff's a great example. How do you prevent that? Well, it's certainly nothing's foolproof, but the person giving you advice probably shouldn't also be the per- person holding your money. So I'll use a, for instance, if you have a Merrill Lynch broker uh, or advisor 
your money's going to come out of Merrill Lynch statements, right? So that broker advisor works for Merrill Lynch. In my opinion, that's a direct conflict. Uh, what if Merrill Lynch isn't the best person to or best company to hold your funds or, or other services? See, what happens to these big firms like a Merrill Lynch and Edward Jones, whoever, they make deals with the devil. They make deals with backdoor deals with financial institutions. Some of them good. I shouldn't say they're all from the devil, right? Uh, some of them bad, but they're in their best interest. And then they go out and sell products through their investment uh, partners or brokers or financial advisors to Joe Public. And sometimes Joe Public thinks, hey, I've got a, quote, independent advisor where it's just some name on a shop. So you get four Merrill Lynch guys or four uh, whoever guys or, and, and gals, and they call themselves the ABC Downtown Wealth Management, private wealth management shop, right? They love the private. They, they love it. They love private, yeah. And they're all vice presidents, by the way. Um, <laughs> not picking on names, but I always say titles come cheap. But I can guarantee you if they're at a large shop, they're a vice president almost. Um, but but sincerely, what they do is they do that stuff. At the end of the day, they still work for Merrill Lynch, Raymond James, or some other large conglomerate, U, UBS. I mean, I'm not picking on any of an individual shop. I, I'm more just talking generalities that, you know, you have to be very, very, very cautious. Um, and our industry is going through a metamorphosis by which people are leaving those big firms in droves, financial advisors, because they finally see that, uh, unless they're handcuffed usually with big compensation packages uh, that keep them at those firms. And frankly, if, and that's not what you asked, but if that weren't the case, most of, most of them would probably leave uh, and their clients don't even, aren't even aware of that. What, what do you think makes BCA so qualified? <clears throat> well, first thing I'll say is our team. I mean, I always say we're a, a large, small boutique, which is weird, right? Um, you know, we can't be everything to everybody. We certainly aren't trying to be a Merrill Lynch because I don't have no desire, you know, to, to we do something totally different. Um, so I think we're large enough to offer all the services, in fact, more than what someone would possibly need. Small enough to know people by their first name. If I run into them in the grocery store, we're going to know them. Um, and then probably as important is the level of qualification of our team. Um, you know, for those folks that that don't know, all three people at this table have passed the CFP exam, right? Uh, and we have more at our office. And for a small boot or a large small boutique firm uh, to have the level of credentials we have per person working uh, is just outstanding. And I would put up against anyone uh, in the area, perhaps anyone in the country. Uh, and so when that person's answering the phone or anyone you're talking to, they have either a time with the firm, a level of expertise or a learning level of expertise that I think is, is not surpassed uh, by many in, in our industry and certainly not uh, in our local market. And one thing, just, you know, maybe a minute, can you speak on, on the CFP and what that means? Because obviously being young and, and passing the exam, I run into a lot of older advisors that we will say maybe work at a large broker dealer or a bank and they say, oh, well, I've passed, you know, this series exam or that series exam or, or the common one is, oh, well, I got 20 years of experience. That's better than any exam. I guess, can you talk about you have the experience and you also have the, the qualifications and how those couple together, um, you know, versus somebody that may have not passed that exam? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll kind of go back and uh, not to date myself too much because that's not been that. I mean, I've been in the business, again, going on 25 years, but and I don't even know when I passed my CFP. I should know that. But I never will forget when I took it, it was a two-day exam. Um, and so physically, it was challenging by the second day. And I remember calling. I had to go to Charlotte. Um, you know, the Internet was around, but we, we, we still did things <laughs> locally. Um, but I remember calling my wife and saying, I don't know if I passed that, but I can tell you something. You can't fake it. 
uh, you have to know your stuff. So what I say about the CFP, and this is a simple layman's version, I think it's a commitment to excellence. That's number one, right? It's to be a professional. Uh, there are all these other series exams and things you can maybe get on the weekend or maybe takes you a month. But I'm going to tell you, having been through it, you both know this, having gone through it, you can't fake it, number one. Um, number two, it takes a lot of dedication just to get through time and commitment. Um, and it really is the standard bearer for financial planners. Uh, and then there's the ongoing continual education and ethical uh, requirements that you adhere to. Now, does that mean every CFP is knowledgeable uh, and ethical? Absolutely not. There is nothing you can ever do to do that. Are there good people who are knowledgeable that don't have a CFP? Absolutely. I just would question why wouldn't they commit to excellence? I agree. And, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, we use this analogy a lot. It's like a doctor. You know, you're going to, you want somebody at least has a doctor to work on you. Are there great doctors? Sure. Are there bad doctors that, you know, still have a, a doctorate behind their name? Of course. Um, so, that, you know, that's one thing I wanted to, to touch on as well. What, um, you know, we work with a lot of clients, obviously. What are some typical client issues that you see, um, you know, in today's world? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, a common one that we see, <coughs> excuse me, a common that we see is a, a, a lack of reality of what's going on, right? So what I mean by that is someone's making $200,000 while they're working um, and they come and they say, well, I only need $3,000 a month to retire on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I immediately know that's either a lie to themselves. It's not they're necessarily trying to lie because they so bad want to retire. They literally have not even looked at the information uh, or they're void of reality, or maybe a combination. Um, so I think that is a common theme that a problem that we see with the retiree coming in um, is not being realistic with their expenses because maybe they're maybe corporate America has beaten them up so much that hey man they're you know they're at 28 years and they needed to get to 30 but they don't know can can we just go ahead and, and call it a day early and instead of putting in the extra two years they're just trying to finagle the numbers to say hey I'll live really really cheap. And I always joke and say, you can't cut your direct TV or dish bill uh, and retire. Meaning, yeah, it's great to cut expenses, but cut, you know, cutting some cable channels out is not going to probably make the difference. Mm -hmm. what, what would you, um, what, what's the process at Ballantyne Capital Advisors? So if I'm a new prospect and I come in, what, what, what do you sort of go through? Yeah, so for our future clients, we tell them, hey, you know, give us a call. And we usually have an introductory meeting uh, in person, typically. Of course, with technology, we do Zoom as well um, or, or even phone if, if, if that works better. Uh, and we get to know one another. You know, that, that meeting could take anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, uh, learn a little bit about the person, what their goals are, what do they bring to the table to start with, what do they want to accomplish. And what I would think the, one of the most critical things that they need to do is, to really gather what they have and discuss as a couple, assuming it's a couple or individuals, fine. Um, you know, where do they want to go? So often if people ask if, you know, can I retire? The question is to where and how much, right? So it's kind of like saying, I want to go on vacation. Do you want to go on vacation to Lake Hartwell? Or do you want to go to Lake Tahoe in California? Because one involves probably a flight, right? Uh, and or do you want to go to the Caribbean? It's a different, it's a different process. So that first process is the introductory meeting. If there's alignment of values, if there's ability for us to help, we would develop the scope of work of how we could work with them, what we might do, how we might do that, uh, and begin the process from there. And then usually that, that involves in collecting data uh, from them, which is maybe statements, tax returns, et cetera. 
putting together a plan. We're planners, as you guys know, first and foremost, have a plan before you begin executing the plan. Uh, in fact, I think when people just start prescribing uh, solutions without doing a plan, it can be malpractice. So we need to be careful with that. Uh, have a plan, review that plan and go over the plan with the client. And then you begin implementing. If you don't do it in that order, if you implement first, just because somebody wants to do something, uh, you, you can make a mistake as an investor or as a financial advisor. I, I want to talk about the data because I, I think that's one of the most important pieces to the puzzle is um, sitting down with a client and for them to, to provide us with enough information to be able to put a plan together. How, how important is that step? Oh, it's critical. And I would say it's one of the things we end up spending a lot of time on. Um, you know, there's people maybe we chase a year or two trying to get data, unfortunately. You know, they want to plan. They want to, again, I'll use a vacation analogy. Everyone can understand that. Um, if you want to go on vacation, you can't just come in and say, I want to go on vacation to where and when and how long, right? Um, oftentimes, I'll get caught somewhere and uh, someone will say, in fact, church is a great place. Hey, Brian, when can I retire? And my, my answer usually is, you probably could retire now in what lifestyle for how long, right? Um, is it a cardboard box? Is it in your current home? And is it an upgrade? Is it a downgrade? You're going to keep buying cars. You're not going to buy cars. And so we can't, we need to know someone's lifestyle and the lifestyle is the data, right? So if we don't have the data, we can't give recommendations. Um, there is no normal customary, right? So we do truly have people that live on $2,500 to $3,000 a month. We got people that live on multiples of 10,000. We won't even go into how much, a lot, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, I guess a lot's relative. It, everyone has a different life. I don't ever have a judgment about that. It's your life. I, we'll help you accomplish whatever, but we got to have the data to know if it's feasible. And a lot of times we struggle with getting employer data. People don't realize how critical, like a paycheck stuff tells a lot of information. And if you got group benefits, we need to know the details on how they work. The devil's in the details. We don't expect the client to know know all that. We just need the raw data, mm -hmm. but it's critical. That's a long answer and probably you really wanted, but without it, garbage in, garbage out is the yep. simplest answer. One, one thing I keep I keep hearing us go through, and obviously I know this is, is planning, planning, planning. Um, and another thing you talked about is is people taking money out for retirement. Obviously, you got to have money to live on. What, you know, we preach a lot about, you know, understanding sequence of return risk and how that could be a detriment to a plan. I guess for our audience, can you explain what sequence of return risk is and then maybe go into some strategies that we use to help minimize that? Yeah, so that's a big fancy word for our audience. I just call it, a, let's don't make mistakes. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, but if I'm to dive a little deeper, sequencing a return is you don't want to retire in the first year or two have a down year, right? So if we're going through a year and the market's down 25, let's call it 25%. And you then take 10%, not that I'm at 10% is too much to take out a retirement plan, most typically on a regular basis, in fact, almost always. Then you're taking out 35%, but you're taking it out, you know, when the market's down. So there are ways to help manage around that. Uh, certainly, there's very little in life that's guaranteed. Uh, we have successfully for a long time used something called the bucket strategy. Certainly, we're not the only ones to use that. Uh, and the bucket strategy is really a pretty simple concept. I, I use this often, but I'll tell this analogy. Um, you know, if you found your favorite food on sale, you might buy more than you could eat tonight, right? So you might put some of it on the grill, some in the fridge, and some in the freezer, a storage mechanism, right? So you're going to eat some now, you're going to eat some soon, and some way later. 
And so that grill, refrigerator, freezer is the short term, the midterm, and the long term. And so when someone retires, I would advocate whether you're 55 or 95, you have those concepts, right? Now, they constantly are going to then be moving. We tend to divide those up in time frames that we can manage around. But to avoid sequencing of returns in that first bucket, the conservative money, we don't want to take stock market risk uh, that are un, unwise, right? So we don't want to put it in and experience 20 30% volatility. So to avoid sequencing return, we try to make sure we have enough cash flow using conservative instruments to avoid selling in a downturn. See, when, when folks call and the market's down, um, it only matters when you sell, right? And if you're not forced to sell because you're living on conservative stuff, most people are going to be okay. So that's one of the important strategies that we use and, and, and I think is critical for retirement income success. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, you talked about the investments, and I, and I think a lot of um, folks just go right to investments, right? Well, well what are you going to – how are my investments going to be? Uh, are they all in the stock market? Could you talk about how we manage the risk throughout each bucket? Yeah. So, in the, again, in the short term – we're going to be looking for instruments that aren't real exciting. Uh, they're really designed, first and foremost, not to lose money um, and or to give some modest amount of return currently in an inflationary environment. we got to combat that. But that's the first goal is not to lose uh, principles we sell. Uh, so you might use things like even CDs, money markets. In your second bucket, you might step it up and, earn, and use some, some higher locked-in CDs or longer locked-in CDs, some other fixed instruments, some more modest portfolios. Our long terms where we're going to focus more relying on stock market to combat inflation. You know, when we structure a portfolio, I'll, I'll briefly talk about that. You know, we could have a whole show about portfolio construction. Um, you know, we want to use investments that are well diversified, have reasonable cost, have a risk return profile that we can measure for a long period of time. And we have not bet the farm on one individual asset class and is broadly diversified. Then along the way, we want to use some things that are more scientific-based, um, such as asset allocation. That term gets misused a lot. Uh, but also to pick up on the factors of the market that have generally been shown to give uh, some additional returns. And so we're going to lean into those factors uh, using some academic and scientific long-term uh, research. But what we're not going to do is time the market, guess when the market's going to go up and down. And Because I, I always say, if somebody's telling you that, would they really share that with you, right? That would be a lottery ticket. So, you know, these these folks that are on TV, the Jim Cramers of the world, whoever, you could name a bunch of them, um, they don't know. If they do, they wouldn't be on TV screaming and yelling it. Uh, yeah, they get it right once in a while, um, but, you know, oftentimes they're going to get stuff wrong. I think there's a saying that you actually use when, when we're talking about the bucket strategy, and it's every dollar has a purpose. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, and I say we assign a purpose. Here's the interesting thing. Not may always say not making a decision is a decision. Same thing with your money. So if you haven't signed in a purpose, you've assigned a purpose. It's a default purpose, right? So if all your money's in the stock market, your purpose is you de you designed it to be all bucket three, as we call it, or long term. Um, that may not be the best strategy if you sit down and do it. So yeah, we believe in purpose-based investing. Every dollar needs to have a roadmap and every dollar needs to have a purpose down to your savings account, down to the cash you keep. Because if, if you don't have that, by default, you have that. And so if you have a choice to make an election, why not make the election? That doesn't mean we as advisors have to dictate where all those dollars are. All we're saying is 
What are you planning on using that for? Because if you tell me, hey, Brian, I've got a $30,000 savings account that I'm never going to spend. I'm going to let my grandkids inherit it in 30 years. Well, we probably ought to not have it in a savings account, right? So the purpose was the grandkids. It's misallocated, right? (laughs) Or opposite. I've got $30,000 in the stock market, and I'm planning on buying a car in 18 months. That's probably not a good place most often, right? So, yes, purpose-based investing is very critical to be complemented with a plan. And I think that's another reason of why it's so important when, when we're first meeting with clients and even when we meet with them yearly is to, what are your goals? Have they changed? What, you know, are you looking for a new purchase? Are you looking for a new house? It, are your kids still going to go to college? What are, is the purpose for this money? Because if, if, like you said, if we're going off of garbage data, then that's going to be garbage when it comes back out. So it's really, it's really important for us to have a, a personal but professional relationship with our clients so we know, hey, this is where we're going to be in five years. and This is what we're shooting for instead of just, you know, throwing darts and guessing at it. Yeah, and, I, and to add to that, the tax situation, mm-hmm. right, especially for our retirees. Um, you know, if you're not looking at your, ta- you know, it's not that we're trying to be nosy, but, you know, to the best extent we can, we want to couple the tax returns with making wise decisions. We're not CPAs, but we want to make sure that we don't make irrational decisions based on a client's overall tax situation to the reasonable extent that we can. So married and couple that, either looking at the returns, getting on the line with a CPA, uh, talking with a client is really critical. And that's a year-by-year basis and, and a change. Yeah, taxes matter. Yeah. They matter a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, that's about the wealth you keep, right? So, I mean, we could make uh, yeah, 20% return, but if you had to give 15 of it back, would it matter? Not, I mean, you wouldn't have to do that, but um, what matters is what you end up keeping, and taxes are an integral part of that, you know, whether it's capital gains tax, IRA tax, whatever tax, inheritance tax later on for people, whatever the tax may be, it matters a lot. Yeah, I agree. To switch gears a little bit, I think we have some exciting news at BCA, you know. Um, where do you see us in the next 10 years, but also in the next few months? Yeah, yeah, so we're going to be expanding, open up a Clemson satellite office. Um, you know, we have a, a number of clients up in that area, all the way from the lakes to Easley to Anderson, et cetera. So that's great. Uh, maybe we'll have some other options in other parts of the state that will allow us to continue to expand and, and, and in other communities. We're going to continue to do that. But what we're not going to do, we're not going to become a large shop, right? We will continue to be a large, small shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do see, you know, been been fortunate. Have you guys uh, on the team now for a while? Uh, we may add another advisor or two, uh, but continue to grow our support team as well to intimately know our clients. Continue to serve them the way that we have with the values, the goals, the planning process. Uh, so that's where I see us. Uh, I see us continuing to be one of the hopefully the Ritz Carlton of financial planners uh, here in the Upstate, and then further on as we're able to do that. But we're only going to markets and places where we can be the best. Uh, you know, we can't be everything to everybody. Um, and so we know our, our limits. And so we certainly are not trying to be uh, what I'll call the Walmart of financial planning. You know, there's a place for Walmart. But we can't be everything to everybody. But where we can be important, we're going to continue to do that and continue to offer services to the public where we can, we can make an impactful difference. Awesome. And, and our signature question, what makes you tick? Well, you know, and I, I knew that was coming, and I've actually answered it, I think, in our first uh, episode. But, our very first episode. Yeah, and I think I'd answer it the same way for those that didn't. You know, 
Um, the first thing is God, God first, and, and everything else will fall in, in line. Um, I'm not perfect in that manner and, and, and certainly more fallen than, than probably most. Uh, second, family. You know, we while we're here on this earth, we're going to hopefully spend time with our family, uh, both both your uh, my wife, kids, and, and then extended family, and then trying to impact the community uh, for, for helping folks. You know, always one of the things when I got in this business, they said is you have to have the heart of a socialist and the mind of a capitalist. Uh, we have to make money. We have to pay our bills. But I do enjoy impacting people's lives in what we do and what we share. Um, what we do matters. I often say after someone's doctor and perhaps their pastor, some we're sometimes you know pretty important in what we do and as we should be. In fact, some people we need to be third. We probably shouldn't necessarily unless people put money too too important. You got to take care of your uh, of God and your health. But uh, we know we're important in people's lives. We know what we do matters, and that matters to me. Um, and and I take it very very seriously, and I know my team does. So that, those are the things that make make me tick personally. What's what's the best way for you know people to learn more about Ballantine Capital Advisors and maybe even set up a meeting just to kind of talk with with everybody at the team? Well, other than this episode of this podcast, <laughs> uh, folks can find us at ballantinecapital.com. Uh, we're out there on the web, and certainly uh, you can find us on Facebook uh, and also on LinkedIn, and I believe we're on Instagram now. Instagram, Instagram yeah. now, and uh, I think uh, going to be and some more on YouTube where we can. And they also could call our office, 864-322-6046, and our team be happy to help you out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brian. I, I really do appreciate uh, you coming on to be on the other side of the table <laughs> um, to kind of, you know, inform our audience of, of what we're doing for the community. So I really appreciate it. For what is well, thank you. And I gotta tell you, for what it's worth, it's actually easier being over here. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why. For our audience, that's kind of like, you know, completely ad hoc, but um, so we'll switch this up and do it a different way <laughs> so everyone can see that. So. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this edition of Connected by Community brought to you by Ballantine Capital Advisors. Um, very, very excited to have you guys viewing us today. Please like us, share us. Um, we're on all the podcast platforms. We're also on YouTube now. Uh, check us out there, and we look forward to seeing you guys again. Until we see you again, uh, go out and make our community great. All information during this podcast is for discussion purposes only, should not be construed as advice. Please seek the advice of appropriate professionals before acting on anything in this podcast. Past performance is not an indicator of future results. Securities through Tried Advisors, LLC, member FINRA. Advisor services through Ballantine Capital Advisors, Inc., Tried Advisors, and Ballantine Capital Advisors are not affiliated.